Well, good morning. I uh, hope you all had a Merry Christmas. hope you had a joyful and a holy Christmas. Uh, the, the Christmas holiday is really such a special time of year for believers as we remember the incarnation of our Savior. We remember that Christ came, that he laid aside the privileges of his deity, and he came to this earth for the specific purpose of going to the cross. So, indeed, it is a joyful season, a most joyful season, as we remember the coming of our Savior. In fact, last week, that's what we looked at in Scripture. Clark took us through the importance and the necessity of the incarnation. And today, we want to stick with a similar theme, the theme of Christ. And we want to look at Christ and His excellency. If you have a Bible open with me to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 4, and again, we'll look at this under the title of the excellency of Christ. Now, it was brought to my attention and remembrance that David Miller preached um, a sermon, I think maybe of this exact same title, from this exact passage at G3 this um, past fall, and so if you want to hear maybe a condensed version of Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. You can go listen to him after we finish up this morning. But we want to consider the excellency of Christ in this passage. Um, In some ways, such a sermon, such a passage is, you, you would never say a sermon is easy, but the most joyful and the most full type of passage to preach as we gather every week, as we gather under the preaching of the Word, our great desire is that we see Christ. And as you'll see in a moment when we read this passage, that's all that you see in these verses. We see Christ. And so in a way, we're looking at this great bottomless well, this inexhaustible topic of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in looking at that, we should be full of hope and full of joy because this passage is full of great truth. But on the other side of that coin, when we come before such a passage with a sense of hesitancy, a sense of weight, and a sense of duty, because Christ is a bottomless well. Christ is great and holy and majestic and glorious, and we can never begin to scratch the surface of how wonderful He is. But our duty is to look, to gaze upon Christ, and to be filled with Christ as we grow in the knowledge of Him. So let's, with that, turn to God's Word. Let's read Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, and then go to the Lord's throne of grace and ask for His help. And this is our time of need. This is the Word of the living God. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now, and we know that this is a great time of need and dependence for us. Lord, for to come before your word is the most joyous and the most weighty thing that a believer can do. Lord, it is your word that you have breathed into us to cause us to be born again, the the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ. It is by your word that you sanctify us, that you conform us to the image of Christ. It is by your word that you encourage and uphold us as we fight battles in this life, as we walk through trial and temptation. It is your word that strengthens and sustains us. Lord, ultimately, we come to your word and we want to see Christ. Lord, if we have gathered for anything other than seeing and knowing and rejoicing in Christ, we have gathered in vain. Lord, if we have gathered in our own strength to try to accomplish those things by our own means, we have gathered in vain. So, Lord, would you please help us? Lord, would you pour out your Spirit upon us in a way that we are able to see and to hear and to know of Christ in new and deeper ways, ways that will cause us to put off the flesh, to put away sin, to crucify the flesh and its passions and desires, and to walk by the Spirit. Lord Christ, indeed, is a bottomless well of glory incomprehensible, in some ways unknowable, but in many ways as revealed in your way, word, he is knowable. So we pray that we would know him more through your word. Lord, please help us in this time. We are weak and frail. Our strength is fleeting and passing Our bodies are wasting away, but Lord, you are strong, you are mighty. Lord, though the grass withers and the flower fades and all flesh is like grass, Lord, your word endures forever. And this is the word that you have preached to us. Lord, fill us with the truth so that we might glorify you in all that we do. I pray in Christ's name, amen. So Jesus Christ, over the centuries, has been described by biblical teachers and biblical scholars as holding three distinct offices, the office of prophet, priest, and king. We find those offices being fulfilled throughout Scripture, all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way to the end of the New Testament. We can pick up those themes of Christ as prophet, priest, and king in the Scriptures. However, in the book of Hebrews, we see this clear 
picture of all of these offices coming together. You see it throughout Hebrews. It's a magnificent book. But in this passage, in these four verses, we see these three mediatorial offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. MacArthur wrote of the book of Hebrews that it almost serves as a, as a book of contrast. He said it's a contrast between the imperfect and incomplete provisions of the Old Covenant, which are given under Moses, and the infinitely better provisions of the New Covenant offered by the perfect high priest, God's only Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, not only do we see this role of Christ as the great high priest, the enactor of the New and the better covenant, but we also see Christ as the voice of of God. He is the one through whom God spoke. We see Christ as the coming king, the, the king who will rule, who will reign, the king who is sovereign, the king who is supreme. To this end, the Reformation Study Bible, which was edited by Sproul, said this about the book of Hebrews. It says, in terms of Christ's redemptive work, Hebrews shows us as fulfilling, as Jesus fulfilling all three mediatorial offices known to Israel, prophet, priest, and king. So as we think about these offices, think of them tying directly to the redemptive work of Christ. These were offices known to Israel in the old covenant that Christ has perfectly fulfilled, that he is perfectly fulfilling as he works the plan of redemption. All of Scripture revolves around the glory and the work and the redemptive plan of the Lord. That, that is the central story of all Scripture, that Christ is coming to save a people. And we see that plan in a, in a great way. There's a great essence of that plan captured here in the book of Hebrews. So in our time today, the aim, I think, is probably rather obvious at this point, that we want to see the glory of Christ. We want to see the glory of Christ in these offices, in these ministries that he performs to and for us. For Christ is glorious. He is sovereign. He is saving. Christ speaks for God because he is God. Christ went into the Holy of Holies and made an eternal sacrifice for our sins because he is the only one who could do that. And Christ rules and reigns. He is the eternal creator, the one who will inherit all things because of his perfect saving work. So the question as we go through this text to ask ourselves really is, is kind of simple and kind of broad because really we just want to see the glory of Christ and let that glory affect the way that we live. But to ask ourselves a question, we just ask yourself, do I live for and do I worship Christ as prophet and priest and king? Do I live for and do I worship Christ as prophet, priest, and king as revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture? So point number one, verses one and two, we want to see Jesus, the voice of God. Jesus, the voice of God. Verse one through the first part of verse two. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, 
In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. We want to see under this first heading, Christ as our prophet, the voice of God. In the Old Testament, the office and the work of a prophet would have been a very prominent position among the people of Israel, among the people of God. Um, The prophets was really how we got much of the Old Testament written. It was the Lord speaking to his people through his prophets, and those then were recorded, and that makes up a large portion of the Old Testament. Hebrews 1.1 starts out by saying, long ago the Lord spoke to the fathers in the prophets, to the fathers by the prophets. And if we were to look at the Greek in in a little bit of a technical sense, you could look at the word long ago and see that it really carries the idea of formerly, because we're setting a contrast here. Long ago, formerly, in a different age, under the old covenant, the Lord spoke to the fathers, to the people of Israel, through the prophets. But that sets up the contrast because now all things come together in Christ. All things are fulfilled in Christ. So long ago, formerly he spoke in this way, but now in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. He has spoken to us through Christ. Now surely this does not lessen the importance or the authority of the Old Testament. All Scripture is authoritative because all Scripture is God's Word. But this highlights to us the authority, the central authority, the central theme of Christ, that all of Scripture points to Christ. All of Scripture is fulfilled in Christ. He is the central theme and central figure of Scripture. And so now notice what it says. It says that long ago, God spoke to the fathers and the prophets, and in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Long ago, he spoke only to Israel, only through the prophets, and in these last days, he has spoken to us broadly, to all people. He has revealed his plan of salvation and redemption and spoken through Christ. John Calvin wrote of this and said, at first, indeed, he wrote to them, he employed the prophets, but he has appointed his son to be an ambassador to us. That's what Christ is. That is what it means to to understand Christ as prophet. He is an ambassador to us. He is a messenger to us, revealing the will of God, revealing the story and the plan of God's redemption to and for us. Now, again, we must be careful. We don't want to hear this and, and use, as some would do, to, to twist this to say that the New Testament carries some authority or some greater power over the Old Testament because we don't believe that. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God's Word and carries the same authority. But there's a measure in which we can understand the glory of God's revelation to us in the person of Christ. 
The Old Testament scripture was written to point to Christ, to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. But now Christ has come. There's this weight of glory in the revelation of the Savior because that is the central turning point of all history. Matthew Henry commented on this. He said, it is a revelation which God has made by his Son, the most excellent messenger that was ever sent into the world, far superior to all the ancient patriarchs and prophets. The message, dear friends, is not superior. The message is not greater, but the messenger is far superior. The messenger is far greater. See the glory of Christ in Scripture as he is the voice and the word and the revelation of God. Consider Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. After Moses' death, it was written that since his death, no prophet had risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Even Moses sinned. We recall that Moses didn't get to enter the promised land because of his sin. The Lord held him responsible for his sin. And then after that, no prophet arose in all of Israel who the Lord knew face to face. That does not mean that the Lord did not record Scripture for us, but he was working through sinful, broken, failing men. But in Christ, we have a perfect leader. In Christ, we have the same inerrant message delivered, but it's delivered by a perfect, holy messenger. We have the Word of God delivered by the perfect example, the one who will never fail us, the one who will never leave nor forsake us. The prophets failed. The prophets fell. The prophets sinned. But in Christ, we have God's word revealed by the one who is holy and blameless. From the one who was the word who was in the beginning with God. The word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. When Christ was made flesh and dwelt among us, we saw his glory. That which was full of grace and truth. So this is God's word made clear to us, his revelation made clear to us in Christ. We can continue on here. Verse 1 says, He spoke to the long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And again, I just want to set up kind of some of the difference we see here between the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. He spoke in in many ways. Consider that. In the Old Testament, you think about how Scripture was recorded. There were dreams. There were visions. There were direct, audible speaking of God to his people. The Old Testament was also brought to us in types and symbols and shadows. The Old Testament had with it this mystery because it spoke of the coming Messiah who was yet to be revealed. The Lord also spoke, the scripture tells us in the Old Testament, in many portions, in many parts. Think about the writing of the Old Testament. It was written 
by many, many authors over probably over a thousand years. It was written in chunks. It took a lot to pull together. It was a, a story of redemptive history from creation all the way up to those 400 years before the birth of Christ. It was written in many parts. It all came together. It is all scripture, it is all authoritative, but it's written in many parts and in many ways. But now think about the story of Christ and his church. The story of the New Testament, it was written in about 60 years by about nine different people, and it carried this one story of the coming of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and then his church that resulted from there. Then we have the book of Revelation that tells us of his second coming. It's this short, congruent message. The harmony and congruence of the New Testament is impossible to miss when compared to the Old Testament. Again, that doesn't make the Old Testament any less biblical, but it shows the difference. And I would even say from this passage, the glory of the way that the Lord communicates to us through Christ. So we're not just talking about the written New Testament, but the revelation of the Savior, the the revealing of Christ rending the heavens, coming in the form of a baby, living a perfect life, growing and teaching and ministering, and then going to the cross. We have a glorious revelation of Christ in the Word of God. MacArthur would say this about the Old Testament. He said, it was progressive. It was incomplete. Not error, he said, but incompleteness marks the Old Testament. God was increasing our understanding as revelation continued. No prophet got the full revelation of God. No prophet got the full revelation of God. But in these last days, dear friends, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. That is full revelation. That is glorious. That is truth. The The fullness of God's redemptive plan was made known to us through Christ, and the Lord deserves all glory and honor and praise for that. In Christ, we have the full revelation of God because, quite simply, Jesus Christ was God. He was God in human form, fully, clearly, and plainly revealed. Not only was he God, but he was the voice of God. He spoke, he taught, he lived his life as an example for us to see what it means for someone to walk in true holiness. He revealed God's will to us in the way that he lived, in the way that he taught, and in what he taught. Jesus spoke after his death. In resurrection and ascension. He spoke to us through the apostles, those eyewitnesses of Christ who then wrote down what the Lord told them and has come together and formed our New Testament. The Lord has spoken through Christ. The Lord has spoken through Christ, and through Christ we have the message of the gospel, the good news, the good news of salvation, which is all We need, when the Lord supplies His grace, we need the good news of Christ and the Lord's grace coming together with that. And then we respond in faith by God's grace and we 
have salvation. So Jesus holds the office of prophet. He is the revealed voice and the word of God. What value do you place on this voice and this word of God? If people were to look at your life, consider your ways, consider how you spend your time, would they say, now there's a person who gives greatest priority and greatest authority to the revealed word of God? Or would they see you as someone who treats the word of God as something that is flippant and unimportant? Do you dwell on Christ? Do you think often and long of Christ and the good news of the gospel? Dear friends, that's why Christmas is such a glorious time of year, because you have reminders all around that it's the Christmas season. And as a believer, when you think of Christmas, your mind should go straight to Christ, your Savior, your Messiah, your Lord, do you dwell on Christ? Now, we've not exhausted this topic, and we're not going to exhaust any of these three offices today, but let's press forward. Secondly, let's consider the office of, of priest. Let's look at Jesus, the atoning sacrifice. We'll look at this in verse 3, Hebrews 1, verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, Jesus, the atoning sacrifice. Consider Jesus in the office of priest, the great high priest. The priesthood um, had much to do. There, there's much said in the Old Testament about the priesthood under the Old Covenant. The priest, according to Exodus 28, verse 1, they were chosen directly and sovereignly by God. In Leviticus 8, we learn that the priest had to be consecrated. They had to be set apart. They had to be made holy before they could serve in the priesthood. There's this ceremony that they had to go through. Leviticus 8 lays it out for us where they had to be washed. They had to offer various sacrifices in order to be prepared to serve the Lord as a priest. Priesthood was even given specific clothing to wear. We see at the end of Exodus 28. They, of course, had specific duties. They would give and offer specific sacrifices in specific ways at specific times according to the customs laid forth by the Lord. Priesthood was a high and a holy calling, a high and holy calling by the Lord for men who were set apart by God to serve God by serving God's people. Of course, there was a great overarching duty of the priesthood carried out once a year by the high priest. That annual atoning sacrifice where the high priest would go into the holy of holies before the presence of the Lord and offer an atoning sacrifice for himself, for the priesthood, and for all of Israel. It was said that they would tie a rope around the waist of the high priest before he went in 
because this was such a holy duty that if any bit was performed wrongly, the Lord would likely strike the man dead and he would be pulled out by that rope tied around his waist. This is what the priest did. That was what the high priest did. He went before the presence of God to offer sacrifice for God's people. And of course, this is where the tie-in to Christ as our great high priest comes. There's much to be seen and to be said in Hebrews 1 verse 3 about Christ as our great high priest. Now, you may not immediately relate the first part of verse 3 to Christ's work as high priest and to his atoning sacrifice, but I think as we consider the, what Christ had to do, I think you can see why these descriptions are so important. And it says, He is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus Christ had to be the radiance of God's glory. He had to be the exact representation of God's nature in order to be a pure and holy sacrifice, in order to be a pure and holy great high priest, Christ had to be those things. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin entered through one man. Through Adam, through his fall in the garden, we are all sinners. We are all credited with initial sin, original sin, guilt, and we are all sinners by nature. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 said that in Adam all die because all are given over to sin. All are condemned when they are born into Adam's race. And this is where Hebrews 1 verse 3 becomes so important. Everyone is dead in Adam. Everyone is dead in Adam except the man, Jesus Christ. For he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus' nature was not that of sinful man, but that of holy God. Jesus was a man, but he did not inherit the nature of Adam. He kept with him the nature of God. He was holy, he was blameless, he was pure, and he was righteous. He was not condemned with or by human sinfulness. That is why Jesus could give himself as a sacrifice, because he was pure and spotless. So let's just consider these descriptions again, just to consider the glory of Christ. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the reflected brightness of God. He is the light that emanates from God himself. In the person of Christ, we get as close as we can on this side of eternity to seeing and witnessing the full glory of God. Now, I said that, I think um, Calvin had an interesting point here and probably a very helpful point. 
He said, nothing can be said of things so great and so profound, but by similitudes taken from created things. Calvin continued, there is therefore no need refinedly to discuss the question of how the Son, who has the same essence with the Father, is the brightness emanating from his light. What does that mean? He continues, we must allow that there is a degree of impropriety in the language when what is borrowed from created things is transferred to the hidden majesty of God. When we try to use created things to describe the glory of God, we fall short. So Calvin says, really, we don't even need to spend all this time trying to figure out how to describe Christ as the radiance of the glory of the Father. What we need to understand is that Christ is incomprehensibly glorious. And let your mind dwell on that, not to describe that glory, but to worship the one who is that glorious. And he also said that he is the exact representation of God's nature. This is where we get the term character or characteristic. We see that he is the stamp. He is the imprint, the representation, the engraving of God in the human flesh. Paul would say it this way in Colossians, that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the likeness. He is the figure. He is the representation of God to and for us. This is our Christ. This is our Savior. This is not his high priestly work, but this is what qualified him to do, what continues to qualify him to do this priestly work. He is perfect, pure, and spotless. He is holy. He is powerful. He is righteous. The Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament priests, were none of those things, not with divine perfection. They may have been men set apart by God, but they were sinful men, men in the flesh. But that is not our Christ. He is holy and pure and righteous. And it's that holiness, it is that purity, it is that righteousness that qualified Christ to do what we see in the middle of verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he was the holy and blameless and spotless Lamb of God. That is what it took for Christ to make purification for sins. He had to be holy. He had to be blameless. Consider the priest of the Old Covenant. They continually made sacrifices day after day, week after week, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice. They did that because all they could do was appease God's wrath for the ordained period of time for the given sacrifice that they offered. That is not the way of Christ. Jesus, when he was on that cross, he bore the full and unbridled wrath of the holy God for every sin of every elect saint for all of history. Your wrath was borne by Christ on that cross for all eternity. 
Christ didn't say it was finished for a week or for a year. He said, it is finished. It is done. It is complete. The wrath is satisfied. And that is why Jesus is the great high priest. That is why he is the atoning sacrifice. If you would turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. If we had time, we would read this whole chapter, but we don't, we don't have time for that today. So just pick up at verse 11 to, to consider Christ contrasted against the, the old covenant. Hebrews 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much better is this sacrifice? How much better is this Christ, is his blood than the blood of bulls and goats that had to be offered day after day after day after day? Not only did Christ make purifications for our sins, but after he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, if you're still in Hebrews 9, look down to verses 23 and 24. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, than these earthly sacrifices. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. For us. Christ didn't go into the holy of holies of the temple, that which was created by the hands of men. Christ entered into heaven directly before the presence of his Father, and he did that, the author of Hebrews says, for us. He went before God for you and for me, and he proclaims your innocence not on the basis of your merit, not on the basis of your goodness, not on the basis of your righteousness, but he claims that you are innocent because you are washed in his blood. He says that you have merit to enter into heaven because his righteousness is credited to your account. Dear friends, this is our great high priest. He is glorious. He is worthy to be praised. Does your life reflect the glory and the worth and the value of this great high priest? Do you live in such a way that people understand the value of the blood poured out by Christ at the cross for you? 
Scripture tells us here that Jesus reflects the glory of the Father. Do you reflect the glory of your Savior? Now again, we've not exhausted this idea of Christ as high priest in our sacrifice. But for the sake of time, let's move forward and we'll just really mention in passing the third point because in many ways this point is, is very self-explanatory here and it's something that we can mind the depths of another time. But thirdly, we see Jesus, the King of all. Consider the end of verse 3 and end of verse 4 again. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is not only the voice of God. He is not only the atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the king of all. He rules and reigns over all things. Christ is exalted. This is a glorious and a powerful master that we serve. But remember, he also says that he is gentle and he is lowly of heart and his burden is light and his yoke is easy. Dear friends, our Savior, though He is great and majestic and glorious, He is also merciful and compassionate. He is loving and He is patient. Let's just consider just for a second this idea in verse 4. He has become much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says that the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. In Luke's gospel, we see there in the foretelling of his birth, Luke 1, 32 and 35, Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God. Those are surely more excellent names than the angels. We read Ephesians chapter 1 earlier. Jesus is seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Surely you likely know Philippians chapter 2, that glorious telling of the humiliation of Christ and then the exaltation of Philippians 2, verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is Christ. He is the king of all because he has the name that is above every name. Every knee will bow at the name of Christ. So this is our Savior and our God. He is prophet and priest and king. He is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwelt in human form. He was the Word made flesh, the Word who was in the beginning with God, but was then made flesh to dwell among us. 
He's the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we could die to sin and be made alive in righteousness. This is our Savior. And so as we transition from the Christmas season and move into the new year, friends, let's think about this. May, may our hearts and minds be steadfastly and continually be reminded of the glory of our Savior. May we purpose in our hearts to serve Him, to obey Him, and to know Him more and more. May we purpose that in our hearts, but may we also order our lives to that extent. May we order our lives in such a way that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. This is not legalistic rule-keeping. That will never get you there. But may we order our lives in such a way that we dwell upon the glory and the goodness of Christ all the more. Really, that's the the foremost and primary application of a text like this. May we see, may we know, may we dwell upon Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he, he told the Corinthians that he hoped that they would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that our toil in him is not in vain. May the same be true of us. May we be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain as it is done in God's grace. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you now, and we again pray that you would take our weak and feeble hearts and minds and cause them to see and behold and to consider and to know the truth of your word. Lord, help us to dwell upon and think of Christ. Help us, Lord, to live lives in a way that would honor and glorify Christ. For our Savior is great. You, our God, are great and greatly to be praised. Write your word on our hearts so that we might live in a way to please and glorify you. Pray in Christ's name, amen.